Hello, and welcome to another episode of Where Was This in History Class. This is episode two of season one, and we're going to call this episode The History of the Tension Between the United States and Iran. So why this episode? Well, after talking to my students and um, some of my colleagues, even my chiropractor, uh, I had several people ask me questions about you know the history between the United States and Iran. How did we and how did we get to this point? So I decided that there's got to be a resource out there uh, to help explain at least briefly a history of how we got to this point and what are the potential effects of the current events that have occurred between the United States and Iran. So for me, the history of uh, of the United States. Um, the tensions between the United States and Iran, uh, they have four distinct chapters or parts, each with its own themes and characters. Each chapter is unique, and yet the effects of each decision, as we will see, continue to mold and shape the next events of this complex story. My goal today in this episode is to show you how the past continues to affect our present and alters our future. And my belief is that after this episode, you will be able to better understand the current events of today. When you begin your research of the history between the United States and Iran, most timelines begin with an event which is known as the overthrow of Mossadegh. We will get there, but for our purposes, I think that we need to go back even further, possibly hundreds of years back in time, to the creation of one of the world's largest religions known as Islam. We won't have time to go through the entire history of Islam, so if you are interested in the history of this religion, you may want to continue researching after this episode, but for our purposes, it is uh, important to understand the beginning of Islam, and what is referred to specifically as the Sunni and Shia divide. Now, part one. Uh, I'm going to call this part religion and division. I'm, uh, you know, I'm into rhyming, former career as a rapper, but uh, so here we go. So the prophet Muhammad, the man responsible for the creation of Islam, died in 632. After his death, there was some dispute over who would take over leadership of the Ummah or Muslim community uh, that he had built. For most Muslims during this time period, they believed that the Ummah or Muslim community should choose their next leader. The larger group who wanted to choose the next leader or caliph would become known as the Sunnis. So the Sunnis are the larger group and they want to be able to choose their next leader. Sunni comes from the Arabic phrase al-Asuna, which means people of the tradition. Essentially, this group believed that the Islamic community needed to deal uh, with the political realities of the day and that the next leader had to be kind of a politician as well as religious leader and be able to, to manage everything that was going on uh, during the time period. So they basically just wanted the best man for the job. However, there was a smaller group of Muslims in the community who believed that the next caliph or leader should come from Muhammad's own family. And that basically the creation of the religions, there was something special, obviously, about the prophet Muhammad. So that would be passed down into his family members. That's, that's the kind of the concept. These Muslims favored Ali. Ali was Muhammad's cousin and then became his son-in-law after he married Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, or Fatima as some some people uh, pronounce it. This smaller group believed that the right to rule the Muslim community should remain in Muhammad's family. Therefore, they became known as Shia Ali, or party of Ali, and are today known as Shia, which means followers. The larger group in the Muslim community, or Sunnis, were able to gain control over choosing the next leader, but after the first three leaders, or rightly guided caliphs, died, Ali would would finally get his chance to rule as the fourth rightly guided caliph. However, violence would soon break out, and this divided the Muslim community. Ali was then killed in 661, and after his death, Ali's son Hussein continued to keep up the fight that his father had started. Uh, So he comes to power, but he too is going to be killed. 
Hussein's death came on a battlefield near the town of Karbala. According to Vali Nasser, author of the Shia revival, Hussein stood up to the caliph's very large army on the battlefield. He and 72 members of his family and companions fought against a very large Arab army of the caliph. They were all massacred. So it is around this time when we see uh, that the, the Shia begin to kind of view themselves as the group in Islam that, that's going to be oppressed by the wealthy, the powerful, and that it is up to the Shia to fight for those who are poorly treated by the more powerful groups that, that exist. In addition, martyrdom, or suffering for one's causes, becomes a powerful form of religious exp expression for the Shia. Uh, so this is an important part of our story, and it's going to come up later as we see how the past continues to shape our modern world. I went back this far in history because the division between the Sunnis and the Shia is still playing out today, um, and it's playing an incredible role in shaping our current events, whether it be the story that we tell here today, or the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, or the history of ISIS, or even the history of the Middle East in general. But for our purposes, we need to understand why the Shia formed their history as the sometimes smaller, poor, and more oppressed groups uh, within Islam, and that Iran has the largest Shia population of any Muslim nation. Therefore, Iran may be viewed as the epicenter for the Shia faith for at least the last 500 years. To answer the question that many of you have been asking as, uh, as you listen, why is there still a divide today between Sunni and Shia Muslims? Well, the simple answer is that there is still a divide today because there is a struggle for political power in the Middle East and uh, you know in other parts of the world, but mainly the Middle East, and that this original is issue may date back to the 600s. But this is this is basically just the foundation. It's it's the economic, political, and social issues that we see rising to the top today. And I don't so, uh, foresee any of these going away anytime soon. So in terms of numbers, Sunnis make up an estimated 90% of Islam, which leaves the Shia population making up an estimated 10% of Islam. So now um, what we need to understand is that the history of Islam is much more complex than what we just reviewed. And if you are interested in this topic, I encourage you to continue to research because the history of such a large religion cannot possibly be covered in such short time that we have here today, which we have a, a lot of things to hit upon. So if you are into this, please, I encourage you to study further. So at this point, I can hear those voices of, the, of some of you who are listening asking, well, what, what does this have to do with the United States? Well, let's begin part two, a section I would like to refer to as we weren't always enemies. So let's begin. Between 1905 and 1911, Iran was experiencing what had become known as the Constitutional Revolution. This is considered to be the first democratic movement of its kind in the Middle East. Uh, according to uh, Amir Hussein Farouz Rajay, on December 30th, 1906, the dying emperor of Iran, Muzaffar al-Din Shah Qajar, signed into law the country's first constitution, launching a brave experiment in liberal and parliamentary government. The revolution that provided the constitution would continue on for some time period, and um, eventually you're going to see in, in Iran a civil war, you're going to see violence, and as Amir uh, Hussein argues, you're going to also see foreign intervention. Foreign intervention is referring to the idea that, that countries that are outside of Iran are going to try to influence what happens inside Iran. However, as an American, what I found amazing during, um, during my research of this time period was that during Iran's revolution... There were actually several Americans who went to Iran to either assist the constitutionalists uh, in their cause or to help rebuild the government uh, after it had um, basically gone through this long period of violence. Americans such as Howard Baskerville and Morgan Schuster uh, arrived in Iran with the intention of helping uh, develop a more democratic form of government. 
Uh, for example, Baskerville, a former high school teacher, stated, the only difference between me and these people is my place of birth, and this is not a big difference. Baskerville supported the outnumbered constitutionalists against royal troops and was shot through the heart and died almost immediately in the beginning moments of a battle, giving his life for a cause that he truly believed in. Today in Iran, there is a, uh, actually a statue or, or bust of Baskerville, and to many Iranians, he is the symbol of, of those who would uh, be willing to die for their freedom. During this time, England and Russia, as well as other European countries, were engaged in what becomes known as the Great Game. The Great Game refers to the power struggle between these nations, uh, essentially for the control of Asia, uh, especially as Russia was looking to expand into places like Afghanistan and the Middle East. I know these names keep coming up of, of these various countries, but uh, we'll see uh, how this plays out later on. So even though Iran was experiencing a revolution in the development of a constitutional government, they were doing so as other powerful nations, specifically England and Russia, were looking to get involved in Iranian business. Then, of course, as uh, oil is going to be discovered in Iran, uh, England's going to try to form a company, and, and they're going to be successful in forming an oil company known as the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which is now today BP. Iran would have to deal with Western nations and their influence as a result of the discovery of oil, and um, this is going this is going to affect them for for quite some time. All right. So okay. So now we can fast forward to the early 1950s and part three, and we will call this chapter of our story the CIA did what? So at this point, Iran has a constitution, but there was still a shah or king in Iran, which made the government a constitutional monarchy where power is shared between a legislature or lawmakers and the king. Earlier, we talked about how Western nations like England had become heavily involved in Iran after the discovery of oil and as a way to maintain more power than other nations like Russia, um, they're going to try to influence uh, Iran heavily. At this point in the early 1950s, there are two major players in the oil game in the Middle East. The first company, which we have already talked about, was the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company in Iran, uh, or you guys can call them BP today. And the second was the uh, Arabian American Oil Company, which was based out of Saudi Arabia, and we are still there today. The oil fields were run by these Western nations, and little of the profit that was made off the oil actually was shared with the citizens of Iran. So eventually, Iran's prime minister, known as Mohammad Mosaddegh, worked to nationalize the oil fields, which meant that Iran would now share uh, a greater control of the oil fields, and they would be able to give that money back to its people, um, which for England, this is going to be a problem because England wanted more of those profits, or BP specifically wanted more of those profits. They do not want the oil fields to be nationalized. Okay, so if you're following along at this point, um, Iran has oil, and they want to gain more control of it, and they so they essentially want it back. And England comes back like uh, like a kindergartner who's just had their favorite toy stolen and develops a plan to get that oil back. So according to documents released in 2017, the British, specifically the British Secret Intelligence Service, uh, also known as MI6, think um, James Bond without telling everyone that you're James Bond. So they approach America and they try to convince the United States to work with them in an attempt to overthrow Mosaddegh. And this would essentially give England full control of the uh, of, of the oil fields, but the government uh, of Iran, its control would go back to this man known as the Shah, the king. So the coup, or attempted overthrow, began to fail in the early stages. After Mosaddegh uh, receives word that it's about to take place and he orders 
a series of arrests. And at this point, the United States realizes that this is going to fail and they call off the operation. So at this point, a CIA agent, a CIA agent by the name of Kermit Roosevelt, he's the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt and a man who may or may not have been trying to live up to the reputation of his grandfather. He refuses to carry out the orders, which told him to stop the coup. So just so we're clear, the United States in the beginning says, do not carry out the coup. Leave Iran alone. The government is in power. Leave them alone. And Kermit Roosevelt takes it upon himself to continue the coup and essentially try to bring down the prime minister, whose name is Mosaddegh. So at this time, Kermit Roosevelt, uh, he hires some Iranian citizens to act as an angry mob and in some cases actually fight each other in the streets, in, in the, the streets of, of, uh, of, of Tehran, which uh, makes it appear as though Mosaddegh has lost control of his country. As a result of this, all right, um, uh, amidst the chaos, Mosaddegh is eventually arrested and the Shah, or king of Iran, returns to power and he promises to remain friendly to Western nations like America and England. So um, according to uh, Bethany Al, uh, Allen uh, Abrahimovan, all right, Operation Ajax has long been a boogeyman for conservatives in Iran, but also for liberals. The coup fanned the flames of anti-Western sentiment which reached a crescendo in 1979 with the U.S. hostage crisis, the final overthrow of the Shah and the creation of the Islamic Republic to counter the great Satan, which is how America is often referred to by uh, extremists in Iran. But to be honest with you, this is only part of the story. The full story of Mosaddegh's fall involves economic issues, the frustration of religious leaders, and the fear of the Communist Party in Iran. I would encourage you to continue to research now that many of the documents on this topic, uh, specifically Kermit Roosevelt's actions, they've actually been released and declassified by the CIA and the federal government. So you can actually read these documents specifically um, on your own. So as we just stated, many in Iran would point to the meddling of the United States and England as examples of the need to regain control of their country. So as Americans today, we know what it is like to have a country become involved in your elections and um, our, you know, frankly, our politics. And the feeling just, it, it isn't great. For those of you who think, who um, need a more personal example, I would compare it to um, almost being catfished. You think you're talking to a person of your dreams only to realize that it's a 55-year-old man who lives in his mom's basement and has a weird obsession with meatloaf and American Girl dolls. I know that sounds oddly specific, but the reality is like if you found out you were talking to that individual, it would not be a good feeling, but you get the point. So at this point, um, we need to realize that for the next 25 years, Iran is going to be controlled by a king or a shah. All right. So uh, during this time period, they're going through some growing pains, but the shah is in control. All right. So he continues to gain wealth from his friendly uh, relationships with Western nations while many in Iran suffered from a slowing economy. In addition to the economic problems Iran experienced, the Shah continues to crack down on anyone who speaks out against him. So any sort of social unrest, which basically meant that he shut down any attempt by the people to criticize his government or um, to you know, come together and assemble and, and you know, protest, he shuts all of that down. According to Janet uh, Afri, for the Shah, when it came to maintaining control of his people, quote, Social and political protest was often met with censorship, surveillance, or harassment, and illegal detention and torture were common. Now, typically, treating your people um, this poorly eventually leads to some sort of revolt or revolution, 
And um, does anyone want to take a guess what is going to happen? I'm sure you guessed correctly, but uh, Iran is going to experience another revolution in 1979, which will place it on a collision course with the United States. While the Shah cracked down on his citizens, there were people who were preaching against the actions of the Shah and encouraging people to remove him from power. Some of the uh, the Shah's haters include a man by the name of Ayatollah, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. Khomeini had been banished from Iran for talking out against the Shah, and he had been banished from Iran for years at this point. Um, but during this time period, he's able to smuggle in recordings of his speeches and his essays which all of them are about basically attacking the Shah, uh, tearing apart his government, declaring that he was corrupt, he's inept, and basically he's a puppet of Western powers, like England, like America. So um, in January of 1978, all of these, the, the smuggled in essays and the tapes and the recordings, they all kind of fuel this anger that, that's been taking place and kind of um, sitting just under the surface. So in January of 1978, this becomes way more intense. All right. And it's going to eventually come to a head in January of 1979. So as the Shah began to realize that he had lost control of his country, he told everything that uh, he told everyone at the time period that he was going to go on a vacation. But this is the kind of vacation that you don't come back from. Essentially, the Shah is is running for his life. So he flees with his family. He flees from Iran to never come back, never return. Now, um, we also do need to note at this point that the Shah had been diagnosed with cancer. So this probably makes his decision to leave Iran much easier for him and his family. So the point is that he flees, he runs, okay? So essentially, the government has been turned over to more radical people, uh, such, as, uh, such as Khomeini, and the Shah is no longer in power. He's gone. Then, in October of 1979, the Shah, who has been diagnosed with cancer, requests permission to enter the United States to receive medical treatment. And uh, essentially, President Carter says yes to the Shah that he may enter and he may receive the medical treatment. However, the Iranian government, the Iranian people are going to receive word of this. And they look at letting the Shah in as like pouring gasoline on a fire that was already burning from anti-American and anti-Shah feelings. So in November of 1979, an angry mob of Iranians storm the American embassy. They take 66 hostages and they demand that the United States return the Shah to Iran. So at this point, all right, the Shah has been removed. He's been added to the United States uh, for medical treatment. He's come to the United States for medical treatment. And the Iranian people cannot believe that the Americans have allowed him in. They want him returned, so they take 66 hostages, and it basically just kind of uh, escalates an already terrible situation. So the Iranian government at this time period, they approve of a new constitution. And this new constitution is much more conservative and religiously based uh, than any previous constitution had been. Uh, so it undoes most of the Western influences that the Shah had worked towards. But remember, at the same time, the Shah had taken advantage of a lot of those Western influences and made himself quite wealthy while the people in the streets suffered. So eventually the hostages are going to be released in 1981. And, and if you're fascinated with this topic, I encourage you to look up more information on your own. We don't have time to cover every single thing uh, that occurred with it. But um, after a number of negotiations and even a failed military raid by the U.S. Special Forces, those hostages will eventually be released. Um, but Iran and the United States at this point are now enemies, and the relationship is uh, strained, to say the least, and it's going to remain negative until today. So this brings us to our final part, all right, part four, a section we will call 
The Middle East is way more complicated than the average American would like to admit. And those who um, all of a sudden think they have become Middle Eastern experts because they posted a meme really need to educate themselves on the complexity of the region and the situation. I think that's a pretty good title. Listen, I don't pretend to know why my students uh, need a $75 hydro flask. So let's not let our friends pretend like they understand the geopolitical uh, ramifications or effects of military action in the Middle East. Seriously, I'm thirsty, but um, I'm going to use my $5 water bottle. And uh, all right, I promise I'm moving on. I'm done. Okay, so let's fast forward to 1995. The uh, United States and Iran are no longer friends. Okay, hashtag like uh, for real enemies, hashtag like they stole your hydro flask. Okay, seriously, last one. So in 1995, the United States places uh, more extreme sanctions on Iran because it was suspecting that Iran had attempted to pursue a nuclear weapon. Now, what are sanctions? Sanctions uh, attempt to hurt a country economically so that what you're essentially doing to that country by placing them um, by placing sanctions on them is that you're trying to convince them to change their their ways. Okay, so you're hurting their their economy and their government financially so that they are convinced to change their ways and play nicer on um, the world stage or with other nations. So again, they are enemies, they are not friends. okay? So we're gonna skip uh, some time here again. Please understand with our time limit, we can't cover the entire history. So the next big event that we go to from between 1995, all right, and on is September 11th, 2001. And I'm sure you're, uh, most of you are familiar with this. If you're not, uh, we're eventually going to do a, uh, an episode on the history of September 11th. So we're going to focus right now on the effects of that day and how it pertains to the history and tension between the United States and Iran. So in October of 2001, the United States invades Afghanistan in an attempt to destroy al-Qaeda and to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. So what does this have to do with Iran? Well, if you look at the map all right, of the Middle East, if you look at a map of the Middle East, you're going to see that Afghanistan and Iran, they share a border. So naturally, Iran is going to watch the situation unfolding in Afghanistan. And um, they have actually been accused of sending weapons and money to Afghanistan to be used by groups who were fighting against the United States and NATO forces. As you can see, this is just going to increase the tension between the, the two countries. All right. So now uh, the next event that I would I would choose to focus on and which increases the tension between uh, the United States and Iran is the United States uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003. Again, if you look to a map of the Middle East, you will find that Iraq shares a border with Iran. So you've got Afghanistan on one side, okay, and you've got Iraq on the other, okay, the east and western borders of Iran. All right, you now at this point in history, you have United States and NATO soldiers, all right, forces, military personnel on, on both sides uh, surrounding Iran. I know it can sound a little confusing. So to be clear, what we're talking about is how the United States invaded Iraq. That's Iraq with a Q in 2003. So Iran is watching events in Iraq for several reasons. First, Iran has US and NATO forces on their eastern and western borders, as we've talked about. All right. So they're essentially surrounded. Second, Iraq and Iran were once enemies which now means that Iran uh, views this invasion as like an opportunity be to become stronger in the region because Iraq is basically taken out of the game. Lastly, as we have learned, Iran is mostly Shia. Okay, remember the difference between Sunni and Shia. So Iran is mostly Shia, and Iraq has a very large Shia population. So Iran, again, sees this as an opportunity to connect with other Shia groups and through money as well as military support, Iran is going to seek to grow its strength in the region. 
This also meant that Iran was providing weapons and money to terror groups operating inside Iraq, which were then used to kill U.S. military personnel as well as civilian contractors. Um, so now I'm not here to tell you my opinion on whether or not the United States should have invaded Iraq, but I will tell you that most historians will agree that no weapons of mass destruction were ever found in Iraq, which is one of the reasons why we decided to invade in 2003. Thousands of United States military members have died, as well as hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who have been killed or displaced. And in the end, some historians believe that the only real winner of the, the United States invasion of Iraq was Iran. Because Iran, we take out some of their enemies, and Iran essentially is allowed to become stronger in the region, which you could definitely make an argument for that. Now, the, the man responsible for training and supporting these Iranian-backed groups in Iraq and throughout the Middle East was a man by the name of General Soleimani, or Soleimani. This man essentially ran Iran's special forces and specialized in developing connections with various militia groups and terror groups throughout the Middle East. So some ex experts have uh, stated that you could actually connect one out of every six American deaths in Iraq uh, to this man, Soleimani. So from the U.S. perspective, he is definitely not a good person. All right, but we, what, what, we, uh, what we need to keep in mind is that Soleimani was one of the highest ranking members in Iran's government, all right, with uh, some saying that this man wielded more power uh, than most other government officials in Iran. Okay, so remain, remember his name, Soleimani, because it's going to come up later in the episode. Okay, so as you were probably aware, all right, the United States, we, we still have a presence in both Afghanistan and Iraq. You're also probably aware that Iran is still enemies with the United States. So what many of you may not realize is that during George Bush's administration, uh, in addition to Iran's support of terror groups in Iraq, a major fear was that Iran was still attempting to build a nuclear weapon. So the sanctions continued, and Iran continues their support for terrorist groups. Um, so think of Iran like uh, almost like an octopus with tentacles extending out throughout the Middle East and reaching out to various Shia groups that want their support and money and uh, and training. All right, but uh, Iran is definitely at the center of that. So after President Bush's two terms, all right, President Bo uh, President Obama is going to take over, and uh, during his uh, presidency. All right, he's going to seek this agreement called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise known as uh, the JCPOA. All right, this is a plan also known as the uh, the Iran deal. The purpose of the de of this deal was to um, have Iran agree to no longer build a nuclear weapon, and in exchange, they would have sanctions lifted, and some of their their frozen assets or money would be returned to them. That's that's the deal. So you don't seek a nuclear weapon, you stop construction of a nuclear weapon, but then you get sanctions lifted, your economy gets better, and you get some money back. That's that's the deal. All right, so this deal appeared to be working at least uh, for the time being during uh, the last few years of, of President uh, Obama's term uh, and then the beginning of President Trump's. But as we all know, President Trump's going to come to power next. He's going to become president uh, next. His administration felt that the agreement was a bad deal, and he decides to not renew the JCPOA or the Iran deal. Um, in 2018, the deal is officially done. The United States is officially pulled out of the deal, but there are several other nations that have signed on to this. They stay. They stay in the, in the deal, and Iran continues to follow the deal as well. All right? So at this point, Iran remains in the deal with the other nations, but the United States creates new sanctions under President Trump for Iran in an attempt to, to continue to hurt Iran's economy. 
Now, this brings us to the reason for this podcast today. In addition to pulling out of the Iran deal and sanctioning Iran's government, President Trump was presented with an opportunity to kill General Soleimani while he was in, while uh, the general was traveling through Iraq. Now, to be clear, both Presidents Bush and Obama had been presented with similar options. However, they felt that the assassination of such a high-ranking government official would cause incredible problems, possibly war, and uh, this is just not worth the risk. Now, President Trump has stated that his administration was presented with information that Soleimani was working on plans to launch an imminent attack against the United States or her allies in the Middle East. Um, however, that information has not been shown to the American people or, or the press. Um, but in his defense, all right, even if there was evidence, we probably would not have access to that as well because our sources um, and the information itself is protected at, at the top secret level. So Trump orders the drone strike on Soleimani, which kills him, and it also kills the leader of a Shia militia group that was working with Soleimani. So as you as you can see, even in death, um, he's still connected to this to these Shia groups who are looking to Iran as almost like a big a big brother relationship for training and for money. So in response, Iran then fires several missiles at a United States airbase that's located in Iraq. However, it appears that the base and the government officials were warned and that no deaths uh, occurred. This leads many to believe that Iran was attempting to look strong to its people and show them that they were willing to fight back against the United States, but um, they also at the same time may have not launched as strong of, a, of uh, an attack because they did not want to escalate the situation by killing United States military personnel, which definitely would have ramped up the situation and, uh, and made things worse. All right, so one of the more tragic events to occur was that during this time period, a Ukrainian airliner is going to be shot down by Iran. This looks like it was the result of what we call the fog of war. All right, um, historians refer to this as the fog of war, which, which typically means the confusion um, or the confusion of warfare that typically happens uh, when tensions are um, at their highest. All right, so the fog of war typically mistakes are made and people are lost. Um, messages are miscommunicated. It's just a, it's a really bad time. So the fog of war, whenever you're referring to it, it's probably not in the, in the greatest light. All right. So um, this is actually, believe it or not, this situation is actually very similar to something that happened between the United States and Iran back in 1988 when the United States shot down an Iranian passenger jet. As, uh, as you can see, uh, Mark Twain was probably right when he stated history doesn't repeat itself but it often rhymes. This is um, this is probably the most tragic part of the uh, of these events that have unfolded in the last two weeks. All right, two nations have shown their strengths um, and their weaknesses, but most analysts think that both nations will uh, ultimately try to avoid a larger war. However, a larger number of civilians, including more than sixty Canadians, they've lost their lives as a result of this um, this this escalation. Whether whether it's going to break out into uh, a full scale war or not. All right, people who are civilians have already lost their lives. So rather than um, get political with you, I'm going to leave you with a series of questions that I hope you pursue the answers to in addition to researching any of these topics that you uh, that we discussed in the episode. I, I hope you find it more interesting and um, are encouraged to uh, continue researching. So uh, keywords here are pursue and research. Try to keep your opinions and your political views out of it until you find the answer and don't be afraid to step out of your social media bubbles in order to locate information. When we surround ourselves with only one viewpoint, we tend to find the answers um, 
that we want to find. They only support our viewpoint, and I don't think that's going to help us grow as learners. So here we go. No, question number one. Did President Trump have the authorization to order the strike on a government official from another country? Remember, Soleimani was not a good guy. I'm not arguing that. But he was the government official from Iran. He's a government official from Iran. So his assassination is um, no different than if a country decided to take out one of our officials. Okay, so we need to we need to remember that. Question number two. Will this military strike hurt Iran or will it create more problems throughout the Middle East? Question number three, will there be future violence between Sunnis and Shia in places like Iraq? Number four, could we see a resurgence of ISIS, which is a Sunni, which is a Sunni group, as a result of killing Shia leaders? Question number five, was there sufficient evidence of an imminent attack as President Trump has stated? So I look forward to hearing about your research and how you interpret these events. I've tried to keep my political opinions out of this so that you are free from bias when you are making up your own minds. I will be back sometime next week with an episode that is more closely aligned to uh, a, a world history curriculum. But like I said earlier, I had several people ranging from my colleagues to students and even my chiropractor as he was kind of adjusting my, my neck, which was a unique experience. They all asked me if I could uh, help break down this topic. Um, so I feel like it was important. So I hope you feel like you've learned something today. As Maya Angelou said, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage need not be lived again. I truly appreciate you listening. And if you like what you've heard, please rate and review the podcast and share with your friends and family. Thank you and uh, have a great night.